You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. Over the last month, I've been reflecting on 2022 and looking forward to what this year is going to bring and have been thinking a lot about what some of the biggest challenges to our discipleship to Jesus are, to us being formed in his image. And as I've been reflecting on that, I came across an interview with an old man in the Middle East. Uh, His face was blocked off so you couldn't see what he looked like, and his voice was disguised. But the interviewer asked him a question. He said, you're living in a place that's difficult for the church to thrive or your life is in danger and your vocation as a pastor is illegal. So how can the American church be praying for you? And the silhouette of a man tilted his head and with as much calm as he had conviction said, pray for us. Sir, we are praying for you. We live in a place where evil is as loud as it's ever been, which means the light is as bright as it's ever been. The sirens are a signal for us. The gods of our city are apparent. We put them on poles and people bow. But you, it's as if the devil is playing you a lullaby that's putting you to sleep. Your gods are justified, hidden in plain sight, and your comfort is your downfall. Please heed the voice of the Spirit of God and wake up. Welcome to 2023. That does appear to be it, though, doesn't it? I mean, maybe one of our most significant barriers is that our lives are easy and comfortable and we live in places where we are not threatened. Maybe it's the fact that our gods lie underneath our Christmas trees or are hidden in our bank accounts or are found in our board meetings and our 50-hour work weeks, or maybe they're in our homes. Our homes are our castles. We're slaves to our kids' schedules. Maybe they're in our politics, a supreme trust in the political outcomes of November disguised as saviors and holding our hearts captive with worship. I mean, our gods are everywhere, hidden in plain sight, which makes them all the more alluring and destructive. Today, we start a journey that will take us the entire semester, and it's through the book of 1 Peter. And if you know much about 1 Peter, you might find that a bit strange. It's a letter penned by the Apostle Peter to a handful of Christians around various provinces of ancient Rome. And the setting of these Christians is not yet state-sponsored persecution, but these people of the way are living in a place that is very hostile to the way of Jesus and the lifestyle and the affection and the devotion that these people have to Jesus is causing quite a significant stir, which in turn is creating isolation, ostracization, and little to no social clout. In other words, there is absolutely nothing culturally or socially advantageous for these people following Jesus. It is costing them significantly. And to be frank, that is very hard for most of us to even fathom. Our experience of persecution may not be invalid. Perhaps you being a committed follower of Jesus has cost you financially. Uh, potential job promotions, relationships with family members, isolated from a certain circle of people. But for most of us, our experience of persecution is not nearly as severe. And so part of reading First Peter is to remind ourselves that we are part of the global church, the big C church. That we are not just connected to Christians in our local expression of the church, or even just Christians in the West, but we are interlocked as brothers and sisters across the globe, meeting homes, in basements, literally underground, 
who for them, letters like 1 Peter are lifelines, where they are able to identify with Christians of old who have modeled a different way under similar and harsh circumstances and find their faith rooted in the ancient way. And if that reason was the only reason to read 1 Peter, that would be good enough. But it is my experience that we very much live with a type of tunnel vision when it comes to following Jesus in America. As in, our experience is the world's experience. Which is somewhat ironic, considering our experience is the exception around the world, not the rule. It would greatly benefit us to begin to read the scriptures through the eyes of those around the world who have so much to teach us. But the other part of our reading of 1 Peter is that in a world that is growing increasingly secular, in a world that is less interested in what we believe and much more compelled in how our beliefs line up with our lives, 1 Peter is offering an invitation to us to reorder our desires and get real practical in our everyday. We don't need theology that is up in the air. We need an embodied faith. One that gets on the ground, one that shows Jesus shows us in the incarnation that is fully human. See, First Peter will take us to the mountaintop of God's love and down below to the affairs of house and home. It gives us a vision for how to respond when treated unfairly, and it lays out what authority means in the local church. It reminds us that we are dealing with spiritual powers of darkness that are impossible to fight outside the power of God. And what do we do with people in power who we find detestable? Martin Luther calls this book one of the noblest books in the New Testament. And having spent most of the last semester reading over it and through it, I would agree. So we're going to take this in three chunks. Who is this letter to? How did they become these people? And to what end is this for? So to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. I don't want to focus on the geography of who this letter is to, other than to say that there, are, there were Christians and churches that were literally scattered throughout the Roman Empire who this was going out to. All of these names mentioned here are provinces and territories where little outposts of the kingdom had been set up, and Peter is addressing them. And there's two terms here that are important, and that will be somewhat themes throughout the letter. And the first is elect. People of God, the church, followers of Jesus, are who they are because of God. And without getting too much in the weeds of what we can often feel like is a circular debate, here's what we need to know. Their status as the people of God are set in stone. There is no floundering of God's love on God's people. They are who they are, not because of what they have done, but because of what God has done. Really, they, they are who they are because of who God is. They are chosen by God. The vertical dimension of their world is absolutely rock solid. Not because their faith happens to be the most stable thing in the world, but because their God is the most stable being in the world. Nothing about the DNA of God is ever in question, even if our faith happens to wane. It is God who initiates. The parable of the lost sheep is so apt here. It is the sheep who wander away, and it is the God who leaves the 99 to find the one. In that story, Jesus says, And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. The story of God can be summed up in this. God sang in Genesis 1 and 2, Let me love you. We sang in Genesis 3, No thanks. God saying from then on, now you're going to understand just what I mean when I say love. 
We love because he first loved us. We receive, he pours out. We find being his child so comforting because he pursued us when we were orphans. We find being in his kingdom so full of safety because he pursued us when we were estranged. Which brings me to the next word, exile. See, Peter calls them chosen, elect, signifying that their vertical relationship with God is rock solid, but then he calls out their horizontal relationship with the socio-political world, and that's way more shaky. And there's a lot of debate about the word exile. Is this merely metaphorical, meaning was Peter just addressing Christians who see this life as temporary, and we are just pilgrims passing through it? Is Peter referring to Christians who are in the world but not of it? Is he referring to people who have lost their status in society because of their devotion to Jesus? Or is he referring to exiles in the sense of being socially excluded by the powers of Rome? Is he referring to people who have no legal status in the Roman Empire? Is he referring to more than just a metaphor, but actual disadvantaged people who have been previously excluded because of their personhood, potentially slaves, foreigners from the outside empire, outside the empire, the poor, and are now even more excluded because of their faith? And after reading this passage and studying it, through a couple different lenses and um, and a lot of the corresponding words used in this letter like foreigner, stranger, alien, I've come to the conclusion that it is actually both, with the former being more emphasized than the latter. Throughout the narrative of scripture, the term exile would be used and known in a few different contexts. When the Israelites were in Babylon, it would be known as exile. They no longer had the power or control or influence that they once had in the promised land. They had been overtaken by a foreign enemy and their life was now in exile. Jesus also uses this type of terminology once in his speech, another in his death. Jesus says to the disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And in his death, Jesus died a slave's death. Nothing about the crucifixion would have been deemed an honorary death. He died the death of an exile outside the city gate where only the scum of the earth would have been killed. And what the Roman Empire is saying to Jesus is, you do not belong here. The church of Jesus is meant to be this subversive minority living as outsiders in a world of gods, living as nomads in a world of competing desires, living free in a world that is enslaved to so many captors. The call is to live and love the world without being consumed by it. It is the great challenge and one of the major themes of this letter. Now, how did they become these exiles? Well, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. Or said another way, loved from the beginning and set apart for distinct purposes. I had this quote framed on my wall in my office downstairs. It's from a German theologian named Jehardus Voss, and it says this, the best proof that God will never cease to love us lies in the fact that he never began. Said another way, God did not decide one day to start loving you. He has always loved you. The fact that he never started loving you means he did not just arbitrarily decide one day, you know, they appear lovable now. <laughs> no, he has set his heart on you. And what that also means is that he will not arbitrarily decide one day, that's it. This is, this is their last straw. I'm done. Regardless of where you stand on individual election, 
Karen Job says the essential point is that Christians are in the church not nearly by their own decisions, but by the initiative of God who has called them. It was God's heart for the ancient church. It is God's heart for the modern church. God has tied himself to one people and one people alone, his bride, the church. Those who are open-handedly surrender to Jesus, God says they are mine. And God's heart for the local church is actually one of our greatest hopes for our personal salvation. It is the purposeful plan of God, which is much larger than your individual life, that forms our ultimate foundation for the hope we have. And don't run over this because it is familiar. Soak this in because it is critical. The foreknowledge of God the Father. God is first the Father of Christ, the second person of the Trinity. The reason that we can call on God as our dad is because we share in the person of Jesus who is more in tune and aligned with the heart of the Father than anyone else. The image that gets used in 1 Peter and throughout the New Testament is rebirth. God is the creator of the world. Each one of us has been intimately woven together through the hands of a potter. But let us not confuse God as creator with God as father. In the gospel, as Jesus tells the church people, the ones with all the theological knowledge, the ones who are dedicated to traditions and programs of the synagogue, that they too have a father. He tells the Pharisees, you belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. Let's not confuse the doctrine of creation with the doctrine of adoption. The doctrine of the Imago Dei says each person is made in the image of God, deserving of equal dignity, respect, regardless of social status, background, and ability. Each person is made in the image of God, something no other religion says about humanity. But the doctrine of adoption says that we are committing our whole lives to King Jesus and open-handedly receiving full healing from the Father through the Spirit. In adoption, our allegiance gets shifted. We move from the ways of the world to the ways of Jesus, to believing the lies we tell ourselves, to receiving the truth from our Father, to listening to every impulse of ours, to being in tune with the Father's heart. There are many important doctrines of Scripture and many important things to know about what it means to follow Jesus, but at the very top of the list is how you receive God as Father. God as judge is simple in our world. We believe in right and wrong. God as creator is even easy to believe. There is enough beauty and creativity in the world to have faith that there is a beautiful mind behind it. But both God as creator and God as judge can be reconciled because God is still at a distance. But God as father, that is intimacy, which is not really a word we love to practice. We love quick, cheap, inexpensive things, the opposite of intimacy, which is deep, long-lasting, intentional, vulnerable. God as Father is that. And then we read in the sanctification of the Spirit and immediately think about being refined in our salvation over the course of our life. But the Word isn't really talking about that. It's much more about how the book of Leviticus speaks of consecration. And consecration is about being distinctly set apart, being put to the side, being called out for something unique, something distinct, something specific. To be filled with the Spirit is to be allocated for God's purposes in the world. It is the moment where you realize that God has pursued you, where you also realize you are being set apart for a life that exists for more than your personal comfort. All throughout the Bible, the people of God are called out for God and for his purposes to be made known in the world. That was the point of Israel. 
They were to be a light for the nations. That was the point of God coming to earth. The light of God has dawned. And that is the point of the church. To be the place that is overcome by light, set apart, and to embody that light in the darkness and decay. For God to consecrate us is for us to take a step back, take notice that God is building an alternative community for the world. We are God's alternative to the destructive forces that are at play on planet earth. And it's not look at us. It is look at Jesus. So who is this letter to? Elect and exiles. How did they become that? Well, they were set apart by God, loved by God from the beginning. And what is their aim of their life in exile? Well, it is counterformation of its cultural occurrence. For obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. If you know your Old Testament, you know that the way God covenanted with his people is that he asked Moses to take the blood of an animal sacrifice on Mount Sinai. In Exodus 24, it says, Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. A covenantal ceremony. A cementing that these people are God's people made for God's purposes to expand God's loving kingdom and rule to the ends of the earth. And those animal sacrifices were a foreshadowing of another sacrifice. And those sacrifices that Moses had made were spotless sacrifices, but they were repeated ones. And yet it was God himself who came down and cemented the covenant once and for all, who became the spotless lamb that would set apart all those who would come under his blood. So the churches that Peter is writing to are reminded, the love of God has pursued us, the spirit of God has set us apart, and the sacrifice of God has cemented us as his for his purposes in the world. They were set apart for purposes way beyond themselves, for obedience to Jesus and loyalty to another king. If the fatherhood of God is one of the identifying markers against other religions, maybe the most countercultural marker of Christianity is that of allegiance. We are pledging loyalties to someone. Life as exiles, as people whose allegiance is to Jesus, means that your allegiance is not to other things, even though the gravitational pull is raging within you. It means holding in tension life in this world and life in another world. It means realizing that there are certain algorithms that are literally made to rewire your brain in such a way that captures your allegiance. Why do you think advertisers and those who enjoy certain products harp so much on brand loyalty? Sure, it's about the bottom line, but the way they care about their bottom line is playing to your allegiance. Who are you devoted to? These are the questions. And a counter-formational community wholly reorders the way it lives and moves in the world because their allegiance has shifted. What would a community like that look like? Well, I came across a story a few days ago that is really marking me and gives a good description. Philip Yancey tells the story in his book, Rumors of Another World, and it goes like this. There was a man named Ernest Gordon who was a British officer that was captured by the Japanese during World War II. Now, the Japanese had essentially constructed concentration camps in the Thai jungle and were using these prisoners of war to help them invade India by building the Burma-Siam Railway. Now, the cultural conditions of the camp brought about the absolute worst. Non-Christian or Christian, it didn't really matter. 
There was a real uh, social Darwinism at work. The prison camp had been a laboratory of survival of the fittest, every man for himself. In the food line, prisoners fought over the few scraps of vegetables and grains of rice they received. Soldiers refused to share their meals. Theft was common. Men lived like animals. And hate was the main motivation to stay alive. With no clothes on their back, they worked in 120 degree heat. Their bodies were stung by insects. Their bare feet cut and bruised by stones. Death was commonplace. If a prisoner appeared to be lagging, a Japanese guard would beat him to death, bayonet him, or decapitate him in full view of other prisoners. Many more men simply just dropped dead from exhaustion, malnutrition, and disease. Under these conditions, with such inadequate care for prisoners, 80,000 men ultimately died building the railway. And Ernest could feel himself gradually wasting away from a combination of worms, malaria, dysenteria, and typhoid. And then a case of diphtheria ravaged his throat so severely that when he tried to drink or eat, the rice or water would come gushing through his nose. As a side effect of the disease, his legs completely lost sensation. So paralyzed, not able to eat, he asked to be laid in the death house, where prisoners on the verge of death were laid out in rows until they stopped breathing. The stench was obviously unbearable. Do you get the picture? Is hell on earth. And then one particular day, as the men were shoveling in the dirt, a soldier stops everyone and says, put down your shovels. And he looked around and realized there was one shovel missing. So he says to the lined up men, who took the shovel? And they're like, I didn't take the shovel. Did you take the shovel? I didn't take the shovel. Not me. And so the man raises his gun and says, if one of you doesn't come forward and tell me where the shovel is, I'm going to shoot all of you. And just as he is lowering his gun, a man steps forward and says, I did it. I did it. The soldier kills him. And the men carry his body back to the camp. And when they returned and were revisiting what they saw every day in this man, they kept saying, that guy was the one guy who modeled the Christian life for them. And when they got back, they recounted the shovels. And each shovel was there. The soldier had just miscounted. Ernest would go on to call this the miracle on the River Kwai. The death of that man was the seedbed of a new community being formed. Almost overnight, attitudes in the camp began to shift. Prisoners started treating each other with respect, organizing proper funerals and burials for the dead and dying, marking each man's grave with a cross. With no prompting, prisoners began looking out for each other rather than themselves. Theft grew increasingly rare and almost became non-existent. Ernest sensed the change in a very personal way. As two fellow Scots volunteered to come each day and care for him, one faithfully dressed the ulcers on his legs and massaged his useless muscles. Another brought him food and cleaned his dish. Yet another prisoner exchanged his own watch for some meds that might help his infection. And after weeks of care, he put on a little weight and to his amazement, regained partial use of his legs. And as he continued to recover, some of the men, knowing he had studied philosophy, asked him to lead a discussion group on ethics. The conversations kept circling around the issue of how to prepare for death. The most urgent question in the camp. And seeking answers, he returned to fragments of faith recalled from his childhood. He taught, I mean, he had thought little about God for years, but as he would later put it, faith thrives where there is no hope but God. 
By default, he became the unofficial camp chaplain. The prisoners built a tiny church, and each evening they gathered to say prayers for those with the greatest needs. What started as dilapidated men barely able to move was revived into a mini-university. Some men started teaching others how to play instruments with things found in the woods. Others started teaching languages, and still others taught how to paint with Thai jungle materials. The transformation of this imprisoned community in the camp was such a 180 that when the prisoners were released, they treated their sadistic guards with kindness and not revenge, offering the most profound message of humanity, radical forgiveness. He says two worlds lived side by side in the jungles of Thailand in the early 1940s. The miracle on the River Kwai was no less than the creation of an alternative community, a tiny settlement of the kingdom of God taking root in the least likely soil, a spiritual fellowship that somehow proved more substantial and more real than the world of death and despair all around. To a man, the prisoners clung to the desperate hope that their lives would not end in a jungle prison in Thailand, but would resume after liberation back in the hills of Scotland or on the streets of London or wherever they would call home. Yet even if it didn't, they would endeavor to build a community of faith, beauty, and compassion, nourishing souls, even in a place that destroyed bodies. Ernest Gordon says this, Death was still with us, no doubt about it. But we were slowly being freed from its destructive grip. We were seeing for ourselves the sharp contrast between the forces that made for life and death. Selfishness, hatred, envy, jealousy, self-indulgence, laziness, and pride were anti-life. Love, heroism, self-sacrifice, integrity, mercy, and creative faith were the essence of life, turning mere existence into living in its truest sense. These were the gifts of God to men. True. There was hatred, but there was also love. There was death, but there was also life. God had not left us. He was with us, calling us to a life of divine fellowship. Perhaps this is what Jesus had in mind as he returned again and again to his favorite subject, the kingdom of God. In an alternative community, we're in the middle of hell, heaven broken. Where in the middle of fending for yourself, you get wrecked by God and begin to look outside yourself at others. Maybe the conditions aren't as extreme for us, but the call is. Fidelity to Jesus because we have been marked by the love of God. A sacrifice of himself so humiliating, the good news so exhilarating that there is no other option but serious faith to a serious God. The opposite of a vibrant community is not a struggling one. It is an apathetic one. And an apathetic faith will not live in a secular society. It will compromise and capitulate and inevitably die. Will Williman says the most eloquent testimony to the reality of the resurrection is not an empty tomb or a well-orchestrated pageant on Easter Sunday, but rather a group of people whose life together is so radically different, so completely changed from the way the world builds a community that there can be no explanation other than that something decisive has happened in history. Have we been marked 
by this profound love that has completely rewired the way we live together. I'm going to be honest with you for a minute and tell you that during the fall semester, particularly around the months of September and October, I was really discouraged about our church. There's a lot of complicating factors to that, but the reality was I had lost touch with why. Why did I start church planting? Why did I come on staff on October of 18? And what was the purpose of that? Why did I say yes? And I was reminded that the reason was not so much to build a church, but it was to make resilient disciples. And if a church came from doing that, great. But at the end of the day, the purpose was not necessarily to plant a church. That was never in my job description. The purpose was to dig ourselves into a neighborhood and to live out the gospel life amidst a community that was either hurt by the church, apathetic toward the church, or antagonistic toward the church. It was to say that there's good news for broken people in a dark world. And I remember remember the very first house I walked into in this neighborhood. It was just two blocks from here. A woman was suffering from cancer. Kids were at Willow Springs Middle School, really having a hard time through a series of connections at the school. I met this woman. And I walked in her home, and the sudden smell of urine overpowered me. (laughs) I physically reacted. It was a serious story. I was alarmed by it. But as I sat there and listened to this woman recount her life to me, and I looked around her home, and she knew me from no one, she just started weeping for an hour. And it was really evident that her life had been hard. She was probably in her mid-40s, a grandmother of a four-year-old who was needing to play the role now of mother and grandmom. And I remember praying with her and not even knowing what or how to pray or what to say that it was going to make any sense or any difference, but just to ask God to do something. And to my knowledge, that woman has now moved away with her daughter and granddaughter. I don't think much of her situation has changed. And she didn't ever return any of my phone calls or text messages that I followed up with her on, but something changed in me that day. And I walked back home and I thought to myself, if the community that I sense the Lord inviting us into does not have space for her, it does not have space for Jesus. To be an elect exile is to live a life that doesn't back away from the scars and sufferings and sins of others, but is compelled by the love of the Father to follow Jesus into places that we would not go by ourselves and to embody a church that says, you don't have it together either. Come on in. The water is just fine. And during that season, I remember praying the prayers. These prayers. Lord, I sense you calling us to build a community that is unexplainable apart from the love of God. That the message of the kingdom of God is so wild that none of us are defined by the worst thing we've ever done. And each of us are given the thing we most desperately desire, the unwavering love of an unwavering dad. It was praying, Lord, I want to be part of a community that is set apart by God for his world, that there is something, rather someone that marks us, that his name is Jesus and that everything we do orbits around him. And so a community that is marked by Jesus becomes a safe place to confess sin while not being a comfortable place to sin. It was praying, Lord, I want each person that finds their home among us that has said yes to Jesus to be encouraged and empowered by your spirit to expand the boundaries of your kingdom in their homes, on their street corners, at their jobs, and in these third spaces, right? Frequented restaurants, gyms, social gatherings, watering holes, because there is no hierarchy in the kingdom of God. We each play a critical role. 
and was praying, Lord, I want to be part of a community that resists the current of culture and says we will be marked by another way, but we are not against the world. On the contrary, we were actually for it. It just does not know that yet. And one of the ways to show that is radical hospitality becoming somewhat ordinary and realizing our homes are not our castles in places of rest and renewal for weary people, both inside and outside the faith. He was praying, Lord, I want to be part of a community that is not monolithic in nature. And while I won't manipulate that into being and I don't want to coerce anything or anyone, the reality is that a people that is committed to Jesus is a people committed to all the people that he has made, especially those who are not like me. So building bridges of relationships around tables with people who I might naturally not share with or want to eat with is what I actually want to be about. And it was saying to the Lord, if your prayer is that heaven would invade earth, might it first invade this small group of people. May our prayer be that we would embody the Lord's prayer marked by forgiveness, picking fights with the devil, battling against our flesh, and making God's purposes in the world ours, and becoming the brochure of the kingdom to come. One of the challenges so far in our church is that the people we haven't necessarily covenanted to anything and so next step we take another step next week we take another step in that journey i believe that the spirit of this church is intact and i believe many of you are about the ways of jesus and his kingdom but we haven't necessarily defined what that means but the whole of scripture from Genesis 1, where God exhorts Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply all the way through Abraham to the people of Israel, to the early disciples, and then to the church. God is cementing his stamp on his people. And over and over again, his people are marked by a covenant. The promise of God's unfailing faithfulness and the commitment of God's people to walk out the love of God in this community and world. Let's become the alternative community that is committed to seeing the presence of God known in this neighborhood so that the outflowing mission of God might burst open the doors and into the streets of our little corner of the earth. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.